Let us pray. O blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back. I think there are some, well, I was going to say, I think there's some chairs in the back, but maybe not. Um, but there are some piled over here on the side. If some of the men would be so kind as to just sort of make sure that the ladies all have a seat, that would be great. Before we begin, I'm going to invite uh, Pat Holden to come forward. She wants to introduce uh, a friend who's visiting from off. Off, yes. Very far off. <laughs> okay. Um, here you go. You got to use that. Oh, I have to use this? Yes. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Jeff, for just this one minute. I want to let you all know that about last week, louder? Just, just how do hold you it do close, it? Just hold it close to your mouth. That's well, how do I get it off of here? Well, you just, yeah. I just broke it. Okay, That's okay. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, earlier this week, I think it was, um, Susan Clarkson just happened, Susan Clarkson Keller just happened to be filling in for another nurse where she doesn't usually work. And a resident was, was with the doctor whom she didn't know, and the patient just happened to ask this, this uh, resident, fellow, I think, where he was from, and he said, Honduras. So Susan said, well, we've been there many times. Anyway, so he said, do you know Dr. Ken Holden? <laughs> I translated for him on his in the Honduran medical clinics. How many years ago? I, I don't know. He's, anyway, he's at MUSC now. He is going to be, can you stand up one second? That, so this is JP. J.P. Igaro, and he'll be um, on the faculty at <coughs> Yale next year, and uh, it's just so exciting to see him, and he was, ha he was uh, anxious to come to church with us today. Thank you very right. much. That's what happens with his medical meeting. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. And Dr. Welcome, we're delighted to have you with us this morning. Uh, just a reminder to us all of how small the Christian family really is, and yet we can live in different places, but we're all part of the body of Christ, so we are delighted to have you with us today. Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to pick up today at Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and following. Uh, it is a familiar section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, at least the content of this particular section is very familiar to you. So let's just go ahead and read through the verses, um, beginning at verse 7, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at it in detail. And Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. How many of you remember um, the switchover from the 1928 prayer book to the 1979 prayer book? That was a peaceful transition, wasn't it? <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, anybody that was an Episcopalian at that time certainly remembers uh, the pain of the change from the prayer book. And uh, unfortunately, I think probably we're going to be getting a new prayer book before long. You know, we're going to be joining the Diocese, the Anglican Church of North America, and they are working on a prayer book. It may be that they let us continue to use the 1979 prayer book. But when we change from one liturgy to another, it is a painful thing. Now, some people on the outside looking in might say, I don't understand why those Anglicans and Episcopalians get all bent out of the frame over this. You know, they really ought not to do that sort of thing. But I think we should. I think we should pay very close attention to the liturgy and how it changes. Um, it's been said that Anglicans are not a confessional church. Uh, that is to say, we don't have a Westminster confession the same way that the Presbyterians do, or we don't have an Augsburg confession like the Lutherans do. I actually think as Anglicans we do. I think it's the 39 articles in the back of the Book of Common Prayer. But there's been a long tradition within Anglicanism that says if you really want to know what Anglicans believe, look at the way they pray. Actions speak louder than words. If you really want to know what these people believe, take a look at the way they worship. And this is an old idea. The Latin phrase is lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of faith. People can stand up and make a great confession on Sunday. They can say the words of the creed, maybe even without crossing their fingers. But if you really want to know what they believe, take a look at the way they worship. Take a look at the way they say their prayers. I mean, think about it for a moment. How does our liturgy begin? Every Sunday, who is the immediate focus of our attention in worship? It's God. I'm reminded of a story that was told to me by a priest who was privy at the time. He was at Neshota House Theological Seminary, and the uh, 100th Archbishop of Canterbury was there, Michael Ramsey, who was sort of a giant of a man, was sort of a, a legend in his own time. And Dr. Ramsey was invited there to get an honorary degree, and he was sitting there in the chapel in this large bishop's throne, and the celebrants stood up, and the first words out of the celebrant's mouth were, Good morning! And the archbishop could be heard muttering, God first, God first, God first. It's wonderful when you think about it. The first words out of the celebrant's mouth on Sunday are not good morning. Not that that's impolite. We want to be polite people. But the first words out of the celebrant's mouth are what? Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. Or alleluia, Christ is risen. But either way, depending upon the season of the year, the focus is immediately on who? It's on God. And that says something about who we are and what we do. It's one of the other reasons why you walk into an Anglican or Episcopal church, and what's the first thing that you see? You see a cross, don't you? That reminds people of who we are. So the way we pray, the way we worship, says a great deal about what we really believe. Now, so lex orende, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of faith. But the phrase is actually three words, three expressions. Lex orendi, lex credendi, lex viviende. That is to say, the law of prayer is the law of faith, and the law of faith is the law of living. 
If you want to know what people believe, look at the way they worship. And the way they worship will in large measure determine how they live. Well, I say that by way of introduction because I think that's what's happening here in Matthew chapter 6. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has been talking, at least in the section immediately preceding this part, about living an authentic life. He was saying it's important that we do not live how? As the hypocrites do. And we took a look at what that word hypocrite means. Hippocritos, it means to wear a mask. And Jesus is saying that as believers, we should not be wearing a mask. We should be anupocritos. We should take that mask off so people can see us for what we really are. We should be living authentic lives. We said last week this is one of the things that the millennial generation complains about. They said they are looking for authenticity in the lives of others. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should be living authentic lives. So I don't think it's any mistake then that he moves from talking about authentic lives to immediately talking about prayer and giving us an example of prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Now what's interesting is that this is not the first time that Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. In Luke's version of this story, he gives us the same prayer, but it's in response to the disciples' request, teach us to pray. The disciples on one occasion saw Jesus go off, he did this on a regular basis, he went off and he prayed by himself, and they saw him praying, and they realized that he had this intimate relationship with God. It was a personal relationship, not private, but, but personal. And, and they were impressed by that, and they came to him, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, well, when you pray, pray like this, and he gave them the model for prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. That's really not a good name for it. Um, we call it the Lord's Prayer, but if you want to know the truth, this is not a prayer that Jesus himself ever prayed. He never said, forgive me my trespasses, because he didn't have any. The real Lord's Prayer, if you want to see the real Lord's Prayer, it's in John chapter 17. It is what is known as the high priestly prayer. Most of the time when Jesus went off by himself to pray, he didn't take anybody with him. As I said, this was personal communion with the Father. John 17 is unique. Uh, John 17 Jesus actually, as he's getting close to the end of his life and ministry, actually allows his disciples to see and hear him pray. He pulls back the curtain, as it were. And John 17 is Jesus' prayer, prayer for his disciples. So that's the real Lord's prayer. What we have here is a model for prayer, which is one of the reasons why the Roman Catholics don't call it the Lord's prayer. They call it what? The Our Father. But... It's interesting because I said in Luke's version, Jesus is giving them the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father as a response to a request, teach us to pray. That's not what he's doing here. He's been talking about living an authentic life, not being a hypocrite, and in the midst of that conversation, Jesus suddenly says, now let me tell you, when you pray, here's how you should do it. Why does he plot down the Lord's Prayer right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount? It's because of this. I think Jesus was trying to teach the disciples that if they were going to leave authentic lives, if they were really going to take off the mask, how they viewed God would determine whether or not they would do that successfully. The way you understand God, the way you have a relationship with God will depend in large measure, or will determine in large measure, that is, how you live your life. So Jesus wants them to be authentic 
And so he says, so let's get it straight, who God is, what God is like, and what you are in relationship to him. How we think about God determines how we live. Lex orende, lex credendi. So Jesus sets the record straight about God in this prayer. And the first thing that he says is that God is a father. Now you have to understand, to Jews, they had understood God as the father of the nation. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you ever hear a person, an individual, call God their father. You just didn't do that. God was high up there. He may have been the father of Israel, but he was not the father of any individual. Moses never called God his father. Abraham certainly never called God his father. My goodness, when the people encountered God, they encountered him. He was up there on Mount Sinai. We're told that the whole area was cordoned off. Not even an animal was permitted to put its paw or its foot on the mountain or it had to be stoned. Because God was holy. He was righteous. He was separate. So nobody called God Father. That was too intimate a term. And incidentally, the word that is used here for Father is the word what? Abba, which means Daddy. Now, that's really intimate. It's interesting. When I was um, the rector at St. David's Church in Chiral, we had a preschool. And my eldest son, uh, who's now going to be 21, it's hard to believe, but he was just a, a little wee kid at the time, and he was in that preschool. And every now and then, they would be parading down the hallways, and I would be coming up the hallway in my collar, and all of the kids would say, good morning, Father Jeff, good morning, Father, good morning, good morning. And then Jeffrey, my eldest, would say, hey, Daddy. <laughs> and it actually became a problem because he would turn around and say, you have to call him Father Jeff, but I get to call him Daddy. <laughs> but it was true, wasn't it? I had a different relationship with him than those other children did. This is something we need to remember about the Christian life. You hear a great deal of, uh, about people saying, well, aren't we all children of God? Don't we hear that people say that? We're all children of God. Do you know that the scripture does not teach that? The scripture teaches that we are all, every single one of us, creatures of God, made in his image. But we are not, simply by virtue of the fact that we are members of the human race, children of God. Children of God takes place by adoption. By adoption. Keep your finger there in Matthew's Gospel for just a minute. And if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. John chapter 1 is this high-soaring Christology. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, who's being referred to here in those verses? Jesus, absolutely. He's the preexistent Logos, the Word made flesh. And if you skip down to verse 14, you see, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that John is talking about Jesus here. So Jesus comes into the world, 
But the world, even though it was made through him, did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you become a child of God by what? By grace, by adoption. We are creatures of God by nature. We become children of God by grace and by adoption. And that adoption part is so critical. Did you know that in the ancient world, a father could disinherit his children? You could disinherit your natural children. If your natural children did something you didn't like, married somebody you didn't like, you could cut them out of the will. But Roman law dictated that you could not disinherit an adopted child. You could not, no matter what they did. Why? Because you made a conscious decision to make them your own. So if you adopted them, they were your heir forever. Well, that's a wonderful message for you and for me as Christians. Once you are saved by grace through faith and not by works, once God adopts you into his family, it does not matter how badly you screw up. He is not going to write you off. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to discipline you. But it does mean he will never disinherit you. So when Jesus is talking about God and he says, let's get the record straight, let's understand who God really is so that you can lead an authentic life, the first thing that he says to us is God is your father. And he's not just a father in the sense that he's a disinterested father figure. He is your daddy. He's made a conscious decision to adopt you. And having adopted you, he will never write you off. How many of you think that's wonderful news? <laughs> That is glorious news. This is the good news of the gospel, you see. He is our father. Now, I know some people have not had good fathers. Sometimes we've had fathers who've been abusive or neglectful or whatever it may be. But I always remind people, never compare God to your earthly father. It's the other way around. God is the gold standard. And if our fathers, our earthly fathers, and I'm an earthly father, and I often fall short, I had to get my family together yesterday and apologize to all, all of them in the house the other day. I was just tense. And I said, the dog needs a bath. Your room needs cleaned up. And I was snapping left and right, and I'm telling you, things were flying. And then I realized, you know, Miller, you're just a jerk. So I got them all together, and I, I said, listen, I apologize. And I I just thank God that they were willing to forgive me, but I'm thankful about the fact that I, you know, I'm an imperfect father. But God's a perfect father. And he loves us. And he's never going to disinherit us. And it doesn't matter how badly we screw up. So God is our father. That's the first thing Jesus is saying. He said, understand about God. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into his family, you cannot be written off. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, neither angels, nor principality, nor things present or things to come, nothing. I love that phrase in Romans, neither anything in all of creation. That's my favorite phrase. You know why? Neither anything in all of creation. That means I can't separate myself from the Father 
either. So the first thing Jesus says is he is our Father. But then he goes on to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. What is hallowed ground? It is honored ground. It is special. So Jesus is saying, when it comes to God, understand he is your daddy, he is your father, but he is also, and make no mistake about it, he is also the king. The story is told about Billy Graham. On one occasion, he was flying in a plane from one city to another, and uh, it was a small plane, and he got caught in some very bad turbulence. And uh, he, the plane was really shaken up. They landed safely and everything, but when they landed, there were people there to meet Dr. Graham, and he got off the plane, and he was white as a sheet. And somebody said, were you scared? He said, I was terrified. <laughs> and they said, well, Dr. Graham, you're a man of great faith. Are you, are you afraid to die? He said, I'm not afraid to die. He said, but it is an awesome thing to realize that at any moment you could be standing in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a whole different perspective, isn't it? That is his father, but his father is still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're watching this Netflix series called The Crown. Anybody watching that series right now? Everybody's watching. I guess it's the new Downton Abbey or whatever. And it's the story of the life of Queen Elizabeth II, the present queen. And there was this very moving scene that struck me where she had up to this point had a very close relationship with her grandmother, Queen Mary. And she became the monarch. When her father died, she automatically became the monarch. And it was the first time her grandmother had seen her since she had arrived back from Africa, and she's now the new queen. And her grandmother's well into her 80s. And her grandmother comes in dressed in a black veil and she sees her granddaughter and her granddaughter's ready to go up and give her a hug and Queen Mary curtsies to her granddaughter. Out of reverence for the fact that this is her granddaughter and she loves her and she's helped raise her, but this is also her sovereign now. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying he is your father, he loves you, he's adopted you, but never forget that he's also the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Well, what does that kingship mean? It means that we are subject to his authority. That is why it says, your kingdom come, your what? Your will be done. When you are dealing with monarchs, you are dealing with somebody who has authority. Now, of course, most of the monarchs that we are associated with today, people like Queen Elizabeth, are constitutional monarchs. Their power is greatly limited. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. Monarchs were absolute rulers. And there's still vestiges of that today, even in Britain. If you get an invitation to a garden party, do you know what it says at Buckingham Palace? It says, Her Majesty the Queen commands your attendance at a garden party. She does not say, respectfully request your presence. She's the sovereign. She's the monarch. She commands you to show up. And then in fine detail, it says, if you can't go, please call. <laughs> but it's the idea that as the sovereign, as the monarch, you are commanded to be in attendance. Jesus told parables about this, about a wedding banquet in which a king sent out invitations and people refused to come. And what did he do? He went and he took those people and he punished them severely because they were insubordinate. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know who God is, he is your father, 
he is a daddy. He loves you. He has adopted you. He will never let you go, but he is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you are subject to his authority. And you have a responsibility to spread his fame. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So let us not forget that God is our king. He's also our father, of course. We said he cannot desert us. He cannot disinherit us. It means he will also provide for us. It is the responsibility of fathers to provide for their families. The Old Testament says the father who does not provide for his family is no better than a heretic or an infidel. It is the responsibility of fathers to care for their family, to provide for their families, to provide for their needs, not necessarily their wants, but certainly their needs, and their protection. Because he's your daddy, you can also count on him for forgiveness, can't you? You know, anybody that has children knows this is so true. It doesn't matter what they do. They may break your heart, but it's hard not to forgive them, isn't it? When they come to you seeking your forgiveness, it is a hard thing. You long to be reconciled to them. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Chuck Swindoll tells a wonderful story about this. He said on one occasion, it was his birthday, he said, I remember it vividly, I was 13 years old. And he said, I... Um, was in my room reading a comic book, and it was a Saturday, and my dad said, hey, Chuck, come on out here and help me weed the flower garden. And he said, I responded with the sassiest tone, as only a 13-year-old boy on his birthday could do. He said, no, it's my birthday. He said, I mean to tell you, my dad set the world's record in the 50-yard dash. And he was in that room so fast, spanking my bottom the whole way out to the garden. And he said, I was weeding the pansy garden, the flower garden, until the moonlight was shining on the daisies. <laughs> and he said, I went back into my room exhausted and ashamed. He said, 10 minutes later, my dad came in. He said, all right, Chuck, get ready. I said, get ready for what? He said, my dad was there in a suit. My mother was there all dressed up. He said, get ready for what? And he said, they got me all dressed, and they took me out to a surprise birthday party with all of my friends. He said, what I got earlier in the day is what I deserved. What I got at the end of the day was what I didn't deserve. We call it grace. That's what a father does, isn't it? <laughs> you sometimes have to discipline your children, but we discipline our children, why? Because we love them but we are quick to forgive. At least that's the way a father should be. So we can count on God for our provision. We can count on God for our forgiveness. We can also seek his guidance. Sam Clemens, Mark Twain, once said this. He said, when I was 16 years old, my father was the most ignorant man on earth. He said, now I'm 21, and it's amazing how much the old man has learned in the last five years. <laughs> That's often the way it is, isn't it? As we grow older, we realize the wisdom of our parents, how they can guide us, 
I, I mourn the fact that my father has died. And there are times when I do. I, I long to call him up on the telephone and say, Dad, what do you think I ought to do? That's what a father is there for. And we have a father who's always willing to give us guidance. He cares for us. He's deeply concerned for our well-being. He wants us to prosper and to be successful in life. Even if you've never had an earthly father you can go to, you have a heavenly father you can go to, and you always have access to him. You remember the story of Queen Esther in the Old Testament? The story about Queen Esther is a remarkable story. We're told that the king of the Persians was basically going to slaughter the Jews, but his wife was actually a Jewess. And she decided that she was going to go in and plead her case before the king. Now, there was a law of the Medes and the Persians that explicitly stated that nobody, nobody could go into the presence of the king unless they were summoned. And the first queen, Esther's predecessor, did try to do that on one occasion, and she lost her position as a consequence. So Esther knew she was in a difficult situation, but she had such concern for her people that she felt she needed to go in. And so the story goes is that she gussied herself all up, she fixed her hair, she put on her best gown, and she went boldly into the king's presence. And I always imagine the doors flying open. When I was in Sunday school, we did it on the flannel graph. Remember the, flannel, the old flannel graphs? But I always imagine her just going in and throwing open these big bronze doors and all of the, kings, uh, the king and all of his advisors are sitting around the table and they look up to see who in the world has done this? Who in the world would, would dare to come into the king's presence without being summoned? And he saw his wife there, so beautiful, so magnificent. And the story goes, he lifted his scepter and bid her welcome and she came in and pleaded her case before the king. You know, that's what we have. We have access to God. We have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing that you need that he is incapable of supplying. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, if that's your view of God, do you not think that's going to change the way you live your life? To know that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are subject to his authority, and yet he is a father who is willing to forgive who longs to be reconciled, who is there to give you guidance and direction in any aspect of your life. Jesus is saying if you see God in that way, that will have an effect upon the way you live your lives. J.I. Packer said this. I know that's a lot of text up there on the screen, but I'll read it for you. He said, you can sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, in the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's why Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer right here in the middle. If we understand God properly, if we have that kind of intimate relationship with him, if we realize how much he has loved us and done for us, we will have a desire to please We'll have a desire to please him. 
My mother is a, is a wonderful lady. She's a godly woman. And I can remember those times in my life when I've done things wrong. My mother never had to punish me. All she had to do was look at me. My mother just had this way of looking so brokenhearted that it broke my heart in return. Do we ever realize that we break God's heart by our sins? And if we love him and we realize how much he's done for us, it should break our heart too. And if it breaks our heart, we will live differently. See, God doesn't want to be that, that father that you serve out of fear. God wants you to serve him out of love. That's a service of perfect freedom. Perfect freedom. Well, that sort of brings us to a break in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just go back just very quickly and talk a little bit about what we've discussed so far in the Sermon on the Mount. We said, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what kingdom living in a fallen world really looks like. We said that it is descriptive, not prescriptive. Jesus is not saying, these are the things you need to do in order to become one of my children. He's saying, if you are one of my children, this is the way you live. And if you're living like this, you will be what? Salt and light in the world. You will make a difference. You'll live a life not merely of success, but of significance. Second thing we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that our lives, Jesus said, should be authentic. We should not be hypocritical. We should be anupocritos, without a mask. And the third thing he says is our view of God will largely determine the way we live. And that's why he gives us the Lord's Prayer, a reminder that we have a God who is a daddy but is also the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now I say this is a bit of a turning point because at this point then, Jesus goes on to talk about an interesting subject. Having laid all of that down as a foundation, he then begins to talk about our life in the public realm. And the first thing that he talks about is anxiety. He says, anxiety is a bellwether of our spiritual health. Take a look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, having talked about how we should pray, then goes on to say this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Therefore, I tell you, verse 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Be honest. How many of you are worry warts? Be honest. How many of you are anxious people? You're fretful. You worry about many things. Only about some of it. Okay, well, 
We're learning, that's right. We are, we are anxious people. And Jesus knew that. But he's saying you'll live an authentic life if you understand who God is. And it's no mistake that Jesus talks about hypocrisy on the front end, Lord's Prayer, and then he talks about anxiety on the back end. Because what he's saying is your view of God will determine whether you're living an authentic life and your view of God will determine whether or not you're anxious. Let me tell you something. Hypocrisy and anxiety are kissing cousins. We don't think of it that way, but they really are. Because both of them are concerned about the same thing. What? Self. Isn't that true? The hypocrite is concerned what other people think about him. And the anxious person is concerned about what? Their own needs. And so there is a sense in which these two things are very close together. So if you're an anxious person, come back next week. In the meantime, I'm going to let you worry about it for a little while. And we'll come back next week and talk about the problems. What are the causes of anxiety? Because Jesus is like a great doctor here. I'm glad we had an introduction of a doctor today. Jesus is a good diagnostician. What he's going to do is he's going to diagnose the problem. He's going to tell you, yes, you've got anxiety, but the real question is, why do you have anxiety? And he's going to lay out the causes of anxiety. But then, like a good doctor, it's not enough to diagnose the problem. You've got to do what? That's right. We need a prescription. So we're going to take a look next week at the Lord's prescription for anxiety. In the meantime, let not your hearts be troubled. <laughs> let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you are our Father. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. By the very power of your name, you called this universe into existence. There is nothing that is impossible for you. You are the God who makes a way where there is no way. And you are a loving Father who forgives us. So grant us the grace to see you aright, to be subject to your authority, to fall in love with you as a father, that we may live in such a way that it pleases you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.